0: Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we offer an encore presentation of a conversation that I had with media scholar Mary Rothschild earlier this spring, March 2020. We talk about how digital devices affect developing brains of young children. How does the constant presence of smartphones and other digital devices affect the developing brains of young children? Well, Mary Rothschild sat down with me and talked about these and related affairs and offers surprising conclusions as well as suggested strategies for parents and teachers to manage children's use of these devices. We offer this program again this week for Media Literacy Week, especially in an era when more and more of us are relying on devices and screens to conduct education and daily business. An hour with Mary Rothschild, Encore presentation on the Project Censored Show. Think about crimes perpetrated by criminal minds, political ties, and alibis, guys, and other guys, democracy, politics, the apocalypse. Got the skies like ominous. So the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured, pay for taxes, and the levies and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, the capacity citizens. Welcome to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, We're going to be talking about the need for critical media literacy education, particularly parent and teacher education around critical media literacy. And we have just the guest for you. We welcome to the program today, Mary Rothschild. Mary is founder and director of Healthy Media Choices, where she coaches individual families and gives workshops for parent and teacher organizations around strategies for intentional use of digital media in the environments of young children. Mary Rothschild has taught courses in children and media at Fordham and Adelphi Universities in New York. Also gave a TEDx talk called The Myth of the Digital Gene in 2017. Mary Rothschild, welcome to the Project Censored show.
1: Thanks so much, Mickey. I'm really delighted to be speaking with you. And to meet your your listeners.
0: I just wanted to remind listeners, I met Mary Rothschild last fall at the Project Censored Union for Democratic Communications conference when I attended a panel that she was on, and I attended her talk, and it was absolutely mind-blowing, the information that she had and she was sharing with all of us. And I wanted to thank Mary, not just for all the work that she's done over the years, but also for her patience and persistence... <laughs> Because it's taken us a few months for me to get Mary on the docket, and I just really appreciate the time that we've been able to spend working on getting you on the program, and now here you are. So, Mary Rothschild, I'm going to hand it over to you. Go ahead and frame what you'd like to talk about and how you got into this important work.
1: Thanks so much, It's been good to get to know you over this time, Nikki. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) We're we're friends now. I know. Um, Yeah, I think your listeners might be most interested in the crucial connection my work makes between very early childhood development and culture and policy environments as those children mature into adulthood. My... The mantra about this is that if politics is downstream of culture and culture is downstream of education, education is downstream of early childhood development. So the roots of so much of what we're seeing in our climate today really can be found in the way that children were developed over the last 40 years. I didn't start there, though, and I didn't start with an academic approach. I really started with what I consider the most undervalued faculties we have as human beings, and that is the instincts of the parent. There are 10 years between my daughters, and when my younger daughter, who was born in 1988, turned about six, I started realizing that something Radically different was happening with her peers than had been the case ten years earlier with my older daughter. I couldn't find underwear that didn't have logos on it. Uh, you know, I, I said, you know the children when they would play, they would play all these knockoffs from television programs, and parties were all themed around these television programs. And I, the parents would say, "What are they going to do when they come to your house?" And I'd say, "Well, you know, they'll play. We don't have a television. They would like." you don't have a television. <laughs> yeah, you're from <laughs> outer space. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's really like, you are know, really out of space. Yeah. Although there's, there's hope. So I saw this and I thought, wow, something is really going on here. And there are a couple of pivotal moments that I won't go into that really made me, I didn't go the academic route, which is interesting because I do consider myself kind of an academic, but I opened a children's center for crafts and handiwork and for work that prolongs the attention. Because one of the things that really alarmed me was I saw how short these children's attention spans were becoming. And so the name of the children's center was Ariadne's Thread, because of the Greek myth of Ariadne and Theseus, which your listeners may or may not be familiar with. But anyway, Ariadne gives Theseus a thread to take into this maze where he's going to kill this minotaur who's devouring the young. And he follows the thread out of the maze. She, she gives him the thread and he can come out of the maze because of the thread. And for me, this thread symbolizes attention. At the end of the day, our attention, our ability to look at our lives and attend to them and, and from my point of view, have this critical thinking facility is what helps us navigate twists and turns, right? So this is my, my real impetus for starting this children's center and I put out one flyer saying, you know, it's all about attention and there won't be any media and just people showed up. So we had a lot of fun. And in the conversations and potlucks and reading groups that came out of the work with the parents in that center, I was burned to go on to academic work, mostly because of what I was hearing from the children. And there's a kind of a pivotal story that I'll, I'll just tell to give you a, taste of the kind of direct knowledge that comes uh, to teachers who spend their days with young children if they're listening to the children. We were making bread, which we did very often in the center, and I was at this round table. My assistant was at the other table. I was like six kids, and we were all making these little bread animals or something, which of course is my idea of heaven, and this little girl who had just turned three was next to me, and she looked up at me. And I had just been thinking that this was exactly why I had started the Center. They had all been eating their bread very quietly and happily, you know, for like three minutes. <laughs> yeah, it was great. They're just paying attention to what they're doing. They're doing something with their hands. It was great. And the little girl next to me looks up at me and says, Mary, the Lion King video is too loud. And I thought, whoa, you know, where is this coming from? And I listened to hear if somebody going by we were in Brooklyn on a busy street and I thought maybe she's hearing the music or whatever. No, I I said to her, you know, I don't hear it. And she said, it's in my head. Oh my. And that was the moment, Nikki, when I was taken by the scruff of my neck and kind of thrown against the wall and said, now I have to not be working with a small number of children. I really have to do something more global about these, these issues because there was this direct experience of seeing what was actually going on neurologically with this child. Wow. And
0: Like what yeah. we call an earworm, Sorry. right? The, the song that you can't right. get out of your head and you apparently can't control yeah. the volume of it or the, the frequency or how much it repeats.
1: That's right. And, you know, for young children who are looking, for instance, The Lion King has a lot of gratuitous violence in yes. it. Yes. Not to mention racial stereotypes, we won't get into all these yeah. <laughs> Disney tropes. But the other aspect is that these images have nothing to do with their everyday life. Children are trying to figure out what they mean, and they're in an atmosphere of openness and total trust because their parents bring them to this movie or have it on their screen at home. And so it must be good, right? I mean, the parent takes care of them. So we don't fully appreciate the inner posture of the child in relationship to these things that the parent allows into the space. That they are open, and therefore they are open to all the advertisers and all the narratives of the commercial culture. So I went and I did my master's thesis on family media literacy. And I started giving workshops and working with individuals. And then I was asked to teach at Fordham and then at Delphi, And then they overlapped, Fordham and Adelphi. I taught other things. I taught gender and uh, responsibility with digital media. But the children and media was the core of the academic work that related to my own work. Which in my workshops, I point to the history of how we got here. What happened in terms of policymaking that opened this situation that we're in now? The research that I feel we need to look to and see how things have changed because of research people did in the past. And then it's always individual. And basically, I think because my own work is rooted in this sense I had as a parent and then as a teacher really has to be a visceral understanding. There has to be this personal assessment of your own situation. It can't be theoretical because it doesn't wash. We walk into, you know, we go to a workshop, we hear all sorts of great stuff. We open the door to home and all of our habits greet us at the door, not to mention the habits of everybody else we live with. So each person in my workshops and, of course, in the individual coaching looks at their own situation and says, is this going to get me where I want to be, where it's just having healthy, happy relationships with your child. Everybody pretty much, they frame it differently, but everybody has pretty much the same goals. But how they frame it is important, and whether or not what they're spending their time on is going to get them there. And when they actually look at how much time they spend in direct relationship with the child in relation to how much time digital media spending with their child, very often that's a big eye opener. And sometimes that step back to just look at what's going on is like the most important step because, you know, it's like the wallpaper at this point. We're all just in this swimming in this digital media environment. So that gets us to why I I started doing the workshops and then the academic work. And now I've moved to the, the West Coast. And I'm starting to give workshops here and and presentations at conferences. But that's the history of how I came to do my work and what the elements of it are in relation to critical media literacy. But to translate that research and that understanding into the vernacular of parents of all socioeconomic and educational levels is what I really feel is so crucially important for us to form human beings and citizens rather than consumers. The way we talk
0: about the topic really matters. A few moments ago when you were telling the story of of the young person that couldn't get the Lion King out of their heads, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I know we, we could have taken a big aside there. I was just curious if you were familiar with Heidi Kramer's work. She has a book called Media Monsters, Militarism, Violence, and Cruelty in Children's Culture. And if you're not familiar with it, I'll share it with you another time. And we we can take that path perhaps on a future conversation. But how did this come to be is what I want to get to here. Because you mentioned earlier, we can talk about deregulation, advertising, children's programming. I wanted to return to the 1980s momentarily. You were talking about this is when all the logos and the cross-marketing and and all the movie stuff and Disney stuff or what have you was all over the cereal or the clothing or the shirts or the games. Mm -hmm. Now, let's look at this back from the critical media literacy perspective about deregulation of advertising, these types of things, marketing Mm -hmm. to children. Could you talk to our listeners a little bit about some of that trajectory?
1: Well, of course, I started to really be aware, my awareness, was keyed in about 1994 when my daughter was about six. Now in the late 1980s, Ronald Reagan very famously said, the last thing we need is a national nanny. And he was so good at these pithy phrases. None of us want to be treated like children, right? And so he keyed into this and really opened the floodgates to the advertisers, the deregulation completely took the FCC, FTC, all this power away from regulating children's media. And within two years, you see this incredible increase in purchases of toys and games that were knockoffs from television programs. There's a film that's put out by the Media Education Foundation called Consuming Kids. It's not new, but it does a good job at this particular – it does a good job overall, but it's just not new uh, in terms of its references. But it does a good job showing this trajectory of how fast the advertisers figured this out. And there was also – and I am apologize, I don't remember the year, but the Clintons had a major conference about early childhood, intending to bring light to the fact that we really need to be paying attention to – neurological development in early childhood. And who was listening? It was the marketers who are listening. They really realized that this was now a target in a way that it had never been before, this demographic. If you implant, the research says, if you implant a logo in the mind of a child under the age of six, repeatedly enough, that 12 years later when they're driving and they're choosing where to go for gas, for instance, they will turn into one gas station or the other. And I had proof positive of this. I decided I had to I had to watch the teletubbies because and I was watching this and I thought, well, it's ridiculous and it's stupid and it's connecting children with media in an effective way, which is something we should get to. But the material wasn't pernicious, it wasn't violent. It was preverbal. And they were jumping up and down and waving at this boat and jumping up and down and waving at the boat. And then Just as I was about to turn it off, the boat turned. And what was at the back of the boat? The chevron symbol. Oh, my. Yeah. So this is what is going on. And with this awareness that it started 40 years ago, over 40 years ago. So we have a whole generation now, some grandparents, their frame of reference, their cultural language, the common lingua franca is commercial media.
0: I wanted to remind our listeners that you're tuned to the Project Censored show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're speaking with Mary Rothschild. She is the founder and director of Healthy Media Choices. We're talking about the importance of critical media literacy in parent and teacher education. And after this brief musical break, we're going to continue our conversation with Mary Rothschild. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we're speaking with Mary Rothschild. She is the founder and director of Healthy Media Choices, where she coaches individual families, gives workshops for parent and teacher organizations around strategies for intentional use of digital media in the environments of young children. Mary Rothschild taught courses in children and media at Fordham University, also Delphi University in New York. And she gave a TEDx talk called The Myth of the Digital Gene in 2017. And Mary Rothschild, just before the break, you were talking about in the Clinton years, there was a conference and a focus set up to look at the impact of media on children and what was happening in commercial culture. And you mentioned that a very interesting kind of byproduct or sort of an interesting unintentional audience. This caught the attention of marketers, And before the break, you were talking about how marketers realized that you could implant these kinds of images and ideas in the brains of children because they would remember years later and it would basically create early brand loyalty. Could you pick up from there and talk about this? What's the psychology behind this? I know when I saw your talk last year, that was one of the really riveting components of it. You talked about how this actually works. It's really pretty insidious that marketing culture really infiltrated this kind of a scene that it seemed like it was trying to be more mindful about the images Mm. and things in media, but then it turned into be a great avenue for manipulation.
1: Exactly. And the Clinton conference was people like Patricia Kuhl, K-U-H-L, who does a lot of research on neuroplasticity, neurobiology, and people who were talking about the importance of early childhood education, which a lot of times people talk about early childhood education, they're talking about child care centers, they're talking about schools. From my point of view, we're talking about parent education because that actually, the first six years, is mostly influenced by the parents. And the, the most dramatic of what happened was the woman, whose name escapes me at the moment, who developed a baby Einstein, was listening to this conference in, like, in her kitchen. And she said, wow, this is great. I'll develop these videos and things for early childhood about cows and, you know, whatever. And she did, and she marketed them originally as being educational for children under the age of two. So the Campaign for Commercial-Free Childhood, among other people, really went after it with the FTC, which is the only arm that can do anything at this point, to say, no, nothing digital, No video is educational for a child under two. They can't understand it. There's no educational benefit for it. So there was a whole fight, and eventually they did take the wording off of the package. But one of the problems with all of this, that the marketers were let in, and this floodgate was opened, and all of this false educational material being produced for very young children, the problem with going at it from a policy point of view and I love campaign for commercial free childhood, I've worked with them for years, is the policy change takes so long and very often doesn't work, especially in the environment we're in now. So from my point of view, even though it seems less efficient, at least it needs they work directly with parents alongside policy development. Because by the time the policy actually gets changed, you have a generation of kids who've already been affected. If you look at what the marketers do, it really is so interesting in terms of their mindset. They work in the marketplace. They're trying to sell products. That's their job. And this is a target audience. And some of the things they do is they have conferences about how to get children to pester their parents. They call it going around the gatekeeper, the parent being the gatekeeper and how to go around the gatekeeper directly to the child and have the child test to the parent for the product. And this has gone into things like even cars. If you notice advertising for cars now, sometimes there's a child involved in this advertising who gets into the car and says, oh, you know, this is the one I want, you know, because it's so great, blah, blah, and all of this means they're targeting the child in order to get to the parent. We see this everywhere.
0: The placement right. of products is all exactly. down low right. where the right. children can see the logos and so on. But anyway, can mm-hmm. continue.
1: You know, that's such a great point because this kind of awareness is really wonderful armor for parents. Because if they go into the grocery store, even a fairly young child, They can say, you know, they're putting it there because they want you to have it. But I want you to be healthy. This thing up here, I'm taking care of you. I want you to be healthy. This up here that's up where I am is the one that's actually much better for you. And I care about you. So this is the one we're going to buy. You don't have to get into the whole thing about advertisers. You just say it's better for you. I love you. I'm taking care of you. Therefore, I'm going to get this one it's up here, you can't see it. So of course you wouldn't choose it, but this is the better one. So it really helps you to not get into the pestering because there isn't a child on earth who doesn't want to hear because I love you, I'm taking care of you. This is the way we do it. Other people might do it. It's fine. They want to do something else. But this is is, um, what I want for you because I care a lot about you. There isn't a child on earth who doesn't buy that. They might still pester a little bit, but ultimately what they're hearing is what they need to hear. I see you, I see your needs, and I'm going to address them. It's not rocket science, but it is different from what we ordinarily do because we're tired, it's the end of the day, the kids (laughs) in the cart. So if you haven't prepared, if you don't have some of this information, very basic information like placement, yeah, Mary yeah. Rothschild, you so you
0: talk about this
1: cradle-to-grave
0: consumption coming out of the 90s. And then, right. of course, we have this explosion of digital mobile technology, as you say. So, in other words, this is just ubiquitous. This kind of marketing and right. targeting is ubiquitous. And other countries have maybe more laws and restrictions about how things can right. be targeted to younger people. But here in the U.S., it's different. So, Maybe you can talk a little bit about that and about about this digital explosion and its impact.
1: Just to go back to the neurological underpinnings, the first six years, now we know, because neurological and neurobiological research is always discovering something new. We know that there's plasticity through life. I am no longer the very good Catholic girl I was, a rule obeyer. I've grown, I've expanded, I appreciate my background, but... I'm a different person now in my age than I was then, obviously. Every time we come into a room, the neurobiology says we make eye contact with somebody, we are actually changing the neurological dynamics of each other's brains, whether we smile at each other or not. All of that is very dynamic. However, in the first six years, actually from the third trimester in utero to age six, is the most dynamic growth neurologically we have in our lifespan. This is where worldview is laid down and it's laid down through a use or lose process. The neurological connections that are formed either strengthen or die off according to how frequently they're reinforced, how strongly they're reinforced. So the child who has these fearful images, for instance, especially if they're also in an environment where they might be, arguing or violence. And in a cultural environment where there's a conversation about war, disease, fear, lockdowns, they can form a view of life that says, this is a fearful place. I have to be afraid. I have to be on guard against the other. I have to be protected from the other. Whereas the child who has what could be called a more organically normal situation where there might be media, media is in our lives and they're going to see their parents use it. But if the primary experience through to age six is of relationship with nature, with free play, with themselves in relation to nature and in relation to other human beings who have engender trust and openness and allow them to try things then the world is like an open box it's like a place where i can use my attention my own insight to create and to be fully human which at the end of the day is what we want and so that critical time determines how we see the world now it can change but basically we're editing that basic framework because once those neurons die off, it takes a lot to reestablish trust, for instance, if we think the world is a fearful place. Now, a lot of research goes into saying that for every dollar spent in early childhood, hundreds of dollars are saved later on in social services, and special education, whatever. And so we know that this is true. We, we, this, is, this is crucial. And some of the research that was done in the 1960s, for instance, Looking at that research now points to where we have come. Yuri Bronfenbrenner, which you may not be familiar with, an early childhood person, started was one of the people who started Head Start. Had this ecological systems theory, which was concentric circles around the child's development, and the closest was family, and then was community, and then there was the macro culture. You know, it went out into the larger world in terms of the influences on the child. And of course, the larger world influenced the parent, but ultimately the parent has this agency. That is no longer true, because specifically because of mobile digital media. The child, now that macro culture, which is predominantly a commercial culture, comes directly to the child through digital media, through entertainment media, through even educational quote-unquote media. The tropes, the priorities of the commercial culture come directly to that child. The child builds a tent. Sometimes the child will take that iPad right into the tent they built. They still build a tent, but it's no longer this sort of creative individual space. They take things from the macro culture with them. With that, Mary, I'm, yeah.
0: I'm going to interrupt momentarily, but I just want to remind listeners, once again, we're here at the bottom of the hour. Um, I'm Mickey Huff, the host of the Project Censored show. That's what you're tuned to right now here on Pacifica Radio. My guest today is Mary Rothschild, founder and director of Healthy Media Choices. We are talking about the importance, and we're going to be getting to this part of the conversation, the importance of critical media literacy education, encountering our vastly commercial culture and its impact on children. So please stay tuned. We'll continue our conversation with Mary Rothschild after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we are talking about a very, very important subject. We're talking with educator Mary Rothschild. She's founder and director of Healthy Media Choices. She coaches individual families and gives workshops for parent and teacher organizations around strategies for intentional use of digital media in the environments of young children. Mary Rothschild taught courses in children and media at Fordham and Adelphi Universities in New York. She gave a TEDx talk called The Myth of the Digital Gene in 2017. She has a website, maryrothchild.com. And Mary Rothschild has a very eclectic background and some things I didn't share with listeners earlier. You mentioned Mary early in the show. You also were director of the Children's Center in Brooklyn you hosted Mm -hmm. the Healthy Media Choices Hour on Community Radio in Vermont. And today we're honored to have you on the Project Censored show. I just wanted to remind listeners that I had the good fortune of running into Mary Rothschild at the Project Censored Union for Democratic Communications conference last fall at Cal State East Bay. And I was really moved by what I heard. And Again, I'm really honored that we're able to have Mary Rothschild on the program today to share this really important information with all of our listeners. So Mary Rothschild, before the break, you basically were talking about how our digital and commercial culture has made its way into the children's tent of infiltrating young people's sense of imagination and, and creativity and these things. So there's this explosion of digital mobile technology, and I know I mentioned this before, but you had to finish talking about some of the neuroscience and psychology behind some of this. But in the U.S., we don't really protect children from this kind of technology. We don't protect children from our consumer culture. In fact, quite the opposite. So talk to us a little bit more where you left off about this now digital mobile technology that's in the hands of children. Get us around to why critical media literacy education, as you put it, needs to come out of the ivory tower and really needs to be part of what we're doing in families and our communities.
1: I just want to point to another person from the 60s, George Gerbner, who had a cultural indicators research project. He was head of the Annenberg Communications School, and he coined the term the mean world syndrome where children who ingest a lot of this fear. This is another uh, video also out of uh, Media Education Foundation around his work. There was a series of videos around his work. And one of the things I find most compelling about his work, which I think some of the people who worked with him tried to continue, he unfortunately didn't really codify it into a body of written work, But what he was talking about uh, that's relevant to this really need for critical media literacy and and parent education and, and, and the education of anyone who teaches or lives with or works with young children is that when we have this fearful attitude toward life, when we become adults, we are very likely to elect people who will protect us. We will be afraid of the other. We will spend millions and trillions of dollars on uh, the military. So there really is a direct connection between this worldview that is laid down in early childhood and what happens where we become adults and we start either voting for people or actually making policy. So we're, to some extent... I think it's it may be too broad a brush, but if we could say where we are now really comes out of chowing down on a lot of fearful media from very early childhood over the last 40 years. So academically, just to end the academic part, an interdisciplinary approach is absolutely necessary here. And what drives me a bit nuts is the siloed nature of academia, where the early childhood people and the communications people and the psychology people, we need some kind of real interdisciplinary approach to this in academia. And then we need to get it out into the mainstream. But in terms of the need for this critical media literacy in parent education, which of course there is no parent education in this country. And this is one of the things that is very different from us and from many other countries where we say, oh, early childhood is so important. We don't fund it. Early Childhood Masters is one of the lowest paying masters you can get in this country. We don't fund it. There's a cute factor. You know, they're so cute. Nothing really important can be going on. So there's a lot of lip service. But what needs to happen is in order to cut through this industry narrative, we really need this critical thinking of who's driving the conversation. Why are they driving it? What's their motivation? What's left out? Who's funding it? Do I need to listen to it? One of the problems with this is that the research comes through the mainstream media usually in this incredibly dichotomous way where it's either or. Either it's going to kill you or you have to have it. And everything is is in kind of a a, a war uh, framework, like the the incredibly difficult decision for a parent to stay home with the child or not uh, to work or not outside the home, you know, becomes the mommy wars. Everything is framed in this extremely dichotomous way, which is not helpful. The decisions we make every day about time, which is where we live, time is life really are so nuanced. We have to take care of ourselves. People are exhausted. They're low energy. They need self-care. How can they prepare to have some time for themselves and not plug their kid into something? All of this takes really this critical thinking about what is it I want, who is talking to me about what they think I should have, and the impact of mobile digital devices on the effective emotional life of children, because what's totally unappreciated is and really needs a step back because it's hard for people to really get their minds around it is that no matter what the material is the child is watching or involved with on a screen, they are becoming attached to the screen itself. No person on earth is going to do for me what my iPhone does. I press a button, and if it's charged, pretty much. It will do what I expect it to do. There's nobody on earth who's going to do that. You know, I ask them, you know, please come here. They're always going to be able to come here. So for a young child whose parents, you know, may both be working, when they have this digital mobile media, they can go with them anywhere. and always does what they expect it to do. Their effective life becomes attached to the device and to everything that comes through it.
0: It's their own genie in a lamp.
1: They touch it and exactly. it comes alive. And they ask it for That's things great. and it gives it <laughs> to them. Exactly. And, you know, we're all addicted to that from yeah. <laughs> our devices. So that means, I mean, it's not just children, but I, I didn't have a television even until I was seven years old. So I'm the last generation who actually can speak to what it's like to not have any of this before seven. So our perspective is very, very different from someone who has, from the very beginning, had the experience of, always having these devices. And you mentioned to me recently that now in classrooms, in the general conversation about uh, what's happening in classrooms, uh, we're seeing that this generation has come up with constant mobile digital media.
0: I was just going to mention the classroom thing, so I I want to hear what you have to say more about this, but I was literally just thinking right now about it was only this semester that I finally gave up. I tried to have technology in the classroom. I tried to have lax standards about how people could use technology in the classroom because I know people use these as tools. But I finally had to say no more, no more personal laptops, tablets, phones in class unless it's directed use. No note-taking. The studies all show that handwritten note-taking is far better for remembering things. So I Mm -hmm. actually had to be that guy. I had to be the the police person that I never wanted to be and say no more of that. Mm -hmm. And you know, you know what helped change my mind. It wasn't just looking out and seeing everybody doing these things. Right. I mean, I saw it, but a friend and colleague of mine said, you know, if we don't help intervene and remind people, and it's not all younger people, but my colleague said to me, you know, we're enabling them and we're not doing them any favors by feeding their addiction. If they can't sit for an hour and a half and be engaged without technology, what kind of future are we preparing them for in terms of critical thinking? And I said, that's it. I already know that. Uh-huh. I already believe that. Uh-huh. Now I need uh-huh. to practice it. So Mary Rothschild, what are, your, yeah. uh, what are your thoughts there?
1: I'm so glad you brought up your personal experience in the classroom because this is exactly what I'm talking about. You know, I had a teacher who said, you're responsible. I was trying to figure out what to do with my life at one point. And he said, you're responsible for what you see. And this is what's crucial. We see what's happening. It's what got me into this. I saw what was happening with my daughter. We see what's happening and we are responsible for addressing it. And people at Fordham and I know lots of other places are doing digital fasts. you know, a day. Some Mm -hmm. people do a week and the students come back with, oh my God, I looked around in my room and I realized what a wreck it was. My husband is a Quaker and he worked in New York with Quaker youth groups and they had a retreat house and... One of the rules was you left all of this uh, digital stuff at the door when you came in and you picked it up when you left at the end of the weekend. And when they did the evaluations, what did those teenagers say they appreciated most was the lack of digital media, that they could let go of it. They know. They actually know. But they need us. Like anything else, they do need us. You're absolutely right. To help them step aside and say, and it all comes back to attention. We don't know what the future is going to bring. And we talk about the attention economy, which really is frightening because we need our attention to remember what's necessary to take care of ourselves, to have loving relationships. And our attention is getting so fragmented. We really need to help every age group to step aside and ourselves to share how difficult we find it to step aside. It's not not all about them. It's about us together.
0: We're at that time in the program. Just remind the listeners to fragment your attention. You're tuned to The Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We're talking to the amazing Mary Rothschild about what I think is one of the most important topics of our time involving critical media literacy, education, and particularly the impact of our digital culture on young people, but also just all of us. And so we're going to continue our conversation and conclude it after this brief musical break. So please stay with us. We'll be back with Mary Rothschild. Welcome back to the Project Censored show. I'm your host Mickey Huff. For today's program, we've been speaking with uh, parent educator, teacher trainer, university instructor, and early childhood consultant Mary Rothschild. Um, Mary, you can learn more at the website maryrothschild.com. Um, as I, uh, we've been talking, of course, for for uh, the last forty five minutes. Um, about just so many important things involving uh, critical media literacy, education, digital culture, its impact on children. Just a reminder, if you're just tuning in, Mary Rothschild is founder, director of Healthy Media Choices. She coaches individual families and gives workshops for parent and teacher organizations around strategies for intentional use of digital media in the environments of young children. Mary Rothschild, I would love to pick up where we just left off. Please continue or pick up from that. And also, I'd like to hear some of these strategies for intentional use of digital media in environments Mm -hmm. of young children.
1: I appreciate your sharing your experience with college age and somewhat older students at a community college, because I do feel that wherever a person is on the spectrum, all the way from being interested in early childhood to being interested in the end result, you know, that's happening now in classrooms, we need to intervene. We need to take say, have some agency. And some of the strategies over these 20 years, Healthy Media Choices was formed in 2000. And the website, Healthy Media Choices, is being integrated into MaryRothschild.com. So there's a link to all of the Healthy Media Choices stuff on MaryRothschild.com.
0: But Mary, give us right. some ideas right now. First of
1: all, there's an attitude behind at least my work in this area. And that is totally non-judgmental. I don't know what the situations people are in. In schools, the culture, politics of schools can determine a lot of stuff. In the home, we don't know the dynamics. I'm not a psychologist. Sometimes if you scratch a habit, you know, a lot of other stuff that's been buffering other problems in the home, this is not a sledgehammer. First of all, because sledgehammers don't work. It is a subtle tool And so it's non-judgmental because we are all in the same boat. We are in this culture where we're constantly pulled into this narrative of we can never look good enough. We can never have enough stuff. Violence is an acceptable, if not inevitable, way to solve conflict and more and more there's a pill for everything that is being promulgated by this consumer culture. I mean, we're all in that boat. So first of all, there's this step back to look at the timeline of where this shift happened and that it was an intentional shift on the part of policymakers and advertisers that affects our everyday life. Just that can really be a light bulb. It goes on in the room that something happened that if I had had a child before that time, my life as a parent would have been different than after that time. That's the timeline of how commercial media and then, of course, digital and mobile media came and is developed to be facile for young children because of the targeting of young children. Then there's the basic models of uh, the research, how the research and the neurological development of children and the effects of fear-based media on their development This tremendous. Every preschool teacher will tell you there's much more anxiety among young children now than there has been in the past. But in terms of critical media literacy, one of the most important things for people to understand when they're reading articles or they're seeing things in the newspaper is to always wonder, who is it who is behind this research? Is it someone, for instance, who's in the communications field where they're looking, you know, this is perfectly legitimate. They're looking at communications plus child. That's what they do. That's what they're trained to do. However, if it's from a pediatrician or child psychologist, child psychiatrist, then they're looking at the child at the center of the question. And media is part of the constellation of influences on that child. Very different perspectives. And then, of course, there's the advertisers who are just targeting them. So there are these actually three different perspectives. And just simply pointing out that fact that you can look and say, who was it and who are they who did the research that this article is talking about? And how is the article framed? And what is my instinct about this? Do I have to actually listen to these people is really a crucial step. Bringing critical thinking into the lives of parents who, you know, may never have gone to college, but they have agency. They have their own instincts. They want their children to be healthy. But they need the information about what's going on that's affecting them. And then modeling conscientious use of technology. In other words, mealtime. Everybody talks about mealtime, which I don't think is fair because not everybody can sit down to a meal together if everybody's working. But mealtime is an example that people very often use of putting everything aside and having time to share how your day went, the highs and lows, whatever. You know, just have a human conversation. Realizing that for a young child, if everybody's home and everybody's plugged into different devices, it isn't necessarily what the adult sees. The adult sees, oh, this is cozy. Everybody's home. You know, we're here together. Everybody's together. The child can very often feel abandoned in that situation because they want to be with, they want the attention of the older children and the, and the adults and what they're doing is, is elsewhere. And then sensory-based problem-solving play for children so that they are developing their own lengthened attention, their uh, problem-solving deficit. The early childhood educators are seeing children cannot problem-solve the way they used to be able to because they're not free-playing and working things out together. So problem-solving in free play is so crucial to early childhood. So these are the things that we need to look at, we need to look at this sort of the research and the history, but also in the home, what is going on? So part of my workshops and a very crucial part of my work is individual assessments. Sometimes there are a hundred people in the room. everybody has an assessment they're doing individually of what's going on in their home and what they wish for and you know how they're spending their time, and then we get together in small groups and share and then bring out the threads of what the concerns are, what people are seeing, and then there's a general exchange. But at the end of every workshop, each person develops one incremental step that they see they can do that will either help them see better what's going on, which some people are just like, wow, I can't even see, or actually affect some change they know they can do. And that can be a tremendous range of things. There are people who say, I'm going to go home and throw this thing out. It's just not going to happen around my child. I don't advocate that. I think it's better to model healthy use and to actually use the devices to train something in the child. But some people think that's what they want to do. All the way to I had one parent who I really felt was a success story. She said, we live in a small apartment. My husband comes home. He plugs it in and it's going to be on, you know, and he plugs a child in. and That's the way it's going to be. We're going to have a big argument, which, of course, we don't want the child to see arguing over media, right? That's not the point. And so she said, but I know he would go for a walk with us after dinner. I think he would do that because he really likes, likes to walk. That to me was a success story because she saw what she could do to offer something that balanced what she saw as problematic for her family. And so she could start there and she could build on that, you see? So you have to start where you are and build slowly. And in follow-ups, this is what people say works. They enjoy doing it. They do it more. They do it longer on the weekends, whatever it was. And the enjoyment together is something that people don't value enough. Actually, if you put all this stuff aside and you play a game, a board game together, or you go for a walk, everybody actually really enjoys it. <laughs> so um, building, on, on, yeah, building you know- on joy... Yeah. Is, is really a very important part.
0: Well, Mary Rothschild, one thing stuck with me that you said several minutes back. I thought it certainly merits repeating and maybe you can even say one more thing about it before we wrap up here and let you finish up your thought. You said that this is not a judgmental process and this is not mm-hmm. about judging what people are doing or judging parents mm-hmm. or judging students, right? Because that comes with right. a lot of negativity and a lot of baggage. People shouldn't be anxious about that element of right. it in your workshops and in your education, because you're trying to empower people to be part of their own solutions
1: that work. Exactly. And I think if if your listeners go away with anything, that is what I would say in terms of my work, but also teachers who are in classrooms, even, you know, in community college, anywhere, and parents, this is what I emphasize the parents, Being alongside is what works. We are in the same boat now. In a school, in a classroom, or as a parent, you're an authority, obviously, but you share your story. You know, gee, the other day I plugged in, and it was three hours later I realized, (laughs) you know, I had I had I had gone surfing with something, and I was someplace Mm -hmm. completely different. And and I really feel let's look at this together and let's try something. It's a very different attitude from, you know, you got a problem and I'm going to help you fix it, which is not my attitude at all. I feel that each and every parent has in themselves the ability to take agency, even if they look at what's going on and they say, you know what, given everything, I am not going to change anything. I can't change anything. That's a decision. And that's okay with me. I would like them to come back and say, what happened then. Because just seeing, we know in life, once we see something, this is like psychology 101, right? Once the light has been shed on something, the light changes the thing. It's never quite the same again. We're not quite as much sleepwalking as we were before. And so that's the hope. We're all sleepwalking. We're sleepwalking into like war. And this is what I really feel. And in terms of the listener's We really have to see that sleepwalking into war starts way back with sleepwalking into the cultural narratives around us and them, around fear. And we need to, all of us together, alongside each other as communities, as families, and as as individuals take responsibility for what we're seeing and really not be afraid to look, not be afraid and not judge ourselves I mean, this is a huge juggernaut that has come at us. It's billions of dollars behind these advertising and cultural juggernauts. So it's more than we could possibly be expected to withstand unless we take that step back. And we do have responsibility. We don't want to judge ourselves. We don't want to judge others. But we do need, for the good of the children, for the good of the society, To take responsibility, which is a little different from saying something's bad and I'm going to fix it. It's like, what are we responsible for communally here? And let's walk together with more light and more trust in ourselves and not have to listen to what everybody's telling us about what our kids need from the day they're born about digital media.
0: Mary Rothschild, thank you so much for spending the hour with us today on the Project Censored show. I hope our listeners found this as enlightening, eye-opening, and significant as I did. And uh, I'm just, I'm really glad that we were able to have you on, and I would love to have you back in the future to talk more about this and certainly promote any places where you're going to be teaching, giving workshops, and the like. I know that you are now in the San Francisco Bay Area. And your right. website is maryrothchild.com Any other things you'd like to share with our listeners or ways to contact you?
1: Mary at maryrothchild.com uh, is my email address. And I would say build on joy. Find joy in pockets of relationship and, and build on it. It's a positive message. It can be framed very gloomily because it's it definitely is sobering, let's put it that way. But the fact is, When we're really in relationship and when we can let go of all of this narrative, we really can, it makes life sweeter. I welcome any communication from your listeners, and I really appreciate you having me on. It's always great to talk to you. It's been great to be here with you today.
0: Absolutely. Mary Rothschild, thanks so much. It's maryrothschild.com. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mickey. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. I'm co-founder of this program with Peter Phillips back in 2010. My co-host is Chase Palmieri. Our senior producer is Anthony Fest. Our associate producer, Dennis Murphy. To learn more about the Project Censored Show and our work, or to listen to any of our previous shows archived online go to projectcensored.org you can contact us through the same website that's projectcensored.org please follow and like us on facebook instagram and twitter and again we appreciate your tuning in we'll see you next time Abitualized, alibis, disguise, and other guys democracy, politics, at the apocalypse. Got the skies looking ominous. So the ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured, paid for, Tax Taxes about the bridges and the levies and the mines collapsing. All the prisons, build the capacity, citizens. in the times for the master thief. Divide and conquer, steal a masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Times running out the reach. on potential, fame. at the table, then you're probably on the menu. We got that lovely flip-flop. The mission we want to crowd that fist pumping river